Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we discuss cases that involve corruption and negligence from the people that we are expected to trust. These cases range from the police ignoring protocol to corporations placing lives in jeopardy in order to maximize profit. Today, I am drinking a rosé to go along with this case. What about you, Del? I'm having some red wine. Ooh, we're on similar veins right now. I can't really handle red wine. <laughs> I wish I could, though. Oh, it's so delicious. Maybe one day. I just gotta, I gotta keep practicing, right? <laughs> right. Work your way up to it. Sounds good. Let's get into today's case. On this week's episode, we will be discussing the Defensive Marriage Act of 1996, or DOMA for short. This law codified homophobia and the othering of individuals in the LGBTQ community. We will look at how this law came to be and what needs to happen to ensure that everyone, regardless of who they love, can express that love through marriage. The Defensive Marriage Act was a law that defined marriage as between one man and one woman. It allowed states to refuse to recognize same-sex marriages. The law was initially introduced in both houses of the 104th Congress in May of 1996 and was signed into law by then-President Bill Clinton on September 21, 1996. A quick disclaimer for this case is that we are commentators, not lawyers. We will be discussing legal cases that are relevant to how and why this law was passed. We will also be discussing some of the legal ramifications that happened as a result of DOMA. DOMA started to come into fruition with the case of Bear versus the Hawaii Department of Health. Nina Bear sued alleging that the ban on same-sex marriage in Hawaii was a violation of her rights and amounted to illegal discrimination. In January 1996, the Hawaiian Supreme Court agreed with Bear and ruled that banning same-sex marriage was akin to banning mixed-race marriage. Due to the full faith and credit clause in the U.S. Constitution, which states that, quote, states have full rights to the legal actions of other states, including marriages, divorces, and other family situations, opponents of same-sex marriage began to worry that the Hawaiian ruling would cause same-sex marriage to be the rule nationwide. This began a push for a federal law that would prevent marriage from becoming legal nationwide. Opponents of same-sex marriage worked quickly to make sure this law was passed as soon as possible. Republican Congressman Bob Barr introduced the bill to the House on May 7th. The bill passed the House of Representatives with a vote of 342 to 67, with two members voting present and 22 not voting at all on July 12th. It passed the Senate with a vote of 85 to 14, with one senator not voting on September 10th. Every vote against DOMA in the Senate was from a Democrat. DOMA was signed into law on September 16th. That's four months. For context, it took over a year for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to be passed. Clinton was the first president to champion gay rights and received enthusiastic support from gay and lesbian voters. However, he faced strong opposition once in office, even from the Democratic Party. When asked about DOMA, one of his advisors claimed, it's wrong for people to use this issue to demonize gays and lesbians, and it's pretty clear that that was the intent in trying to create a buzz on this issue. 
Many believed Clinton felt boxed in by political opponents when it came to DOMA and that if he vetoed the law, he would lose re-election. In his second term, Clinton continued to fight for gay and lesbian rights, but the damage of DOMA was done. And he has since gone on to not necessarily apologize, but say that DOMA was unconstitutional. So DOMA had numerous negative implications for same-sex couples. They were denied health insurances and pension protections, prevented from filing joint tax returns, exemptions from estate taxes, social security benefits for widowers, and support and benefits for military spouses. Even if the same-sex partner was allowed on their spouse's workplace health care plan, they had to pay taxes on it. This is something that straight couples did not have to do. The non-biological parent of a child could not take advantage of the Family Medical Leave Act and was not allowed to form a legal relationship with the child. It served as reinforcement to the bigoted idea that same-sex marriage was abnormal. It also reinforced the idea that children raised in same-sex marriages were predisposed to a host of negative outcomes such as drug addiction and abuse, which studies have shown that that is not true at all. Supporters of DOMA stated the same-sex marriage was akin to polygamy and incest and against the monogamous ideal of traditional marriage, which we'll talk about a little more later in this episode. The law was clearly against giving all people basic human rights. Things began to change when the landmark court ruling started being handed down. In 2013, in the case of the U.S. v. Windsor, Section 3, which barred same-sex couples from enjoying the same federal benefits as straight couples, was ruled unconstitutional. In 2015, in the Obergefell v. Hodges case, the Supreme Court ruled that the state bans on same-sex marriages were unconstitutional and that same-sex marriages were illegally recognized across the country. The first thing we're going to dive into is what supporters of Don McLean they were fighting for, traditional marriage. In this context, we will be discussing traditional Judeo-Christian marriage because it is the dominant religious culture in the West. Similar customs can be found throughout the world and many other religions, especially the ones that are male-dominated. We could probably have our, our own podcast just on the history of marriage and, you know, implications of marriage. So we're just going to do a very, very brief overview of how marriage traditionally was. So marriage has been around for over 4,000 years and initially wasn't done for love, but for money, property, diplomacy, and family connections and status. Marriages were often chosen by the couple's parents. Procreation and maintaining a family line also played an important role. Women were seen as property of their husbands with no identity of their own, and Romans, ancient Romans, even used their wives as political currency and had them married off to others in order to form political alliances. Religion didn't really play a role in marriage until the Catholic Church really started to gain power in Europe. And in 1563, the Catholic Church viewed marriage as a sacred ritual that needed to be done within a church. The church upheld the idea that men should have more power over their wives in a marriage. And the idea of marriage for romantic love didn't come until centuries later, and many believed that it gave women more power in a marriage. This, of course, was criticized, and some even claimed this would cause the destruction of marriage. 
However, we didn't see greater equality within marriages until the last 60 years. The vows couples recite during weddings today can be tied back 500 years to the architect of English Protestantism. So that's to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. Those same sentiments have been around for centuries. And we're talking about an American law with DOMA, but the Clandestine Marriage Act of 1753 in England made any marriages performed outside of a church or chapel void, which just shows the powerful role religion has historically held within marriage. So as I was doing my research for this case, I found a detail out that I think we need to address. So the House Judiciary Committee Chairman Henry Hyde, who had helped rush the Defense of Marriage Act through with the justification that same-sex unions were, quote, illegitimate and immoral, had actually broken up another man's marriage by having an affair with his wife. And Newt Gingrich, who also pushed DOMA through um, and was part of Bill Clinton's impeachment, was also later revealed to be having an affair at the time. So what really is, you know, this sanctity of marriage if everyone is just cheating on their wives? So to me, that means these rules don't apply to you. Right. It's the traditional hypocrisy that you see in a lot of cases where people are bigoted against others. And I think that hypocrisy is really something we're going to touch on a lot with DOMA specifically. Something that is linked to traditional marriage is traditional gender roles. Everyone has the right to choose what their relationship will look like. True freedom is being able to decide what love and stability is for you. The trouble is that some individuals try to impose their own view on others. This leads to people who do not fit within that individual's views being shamed and having their rights stripped away. So gender roles really play kind of a big part in how we view marriage. There's this idea of the assertive man taking care of his family and the doting and submissive wife who looks after the children and the home. So like we said before, women kind of lost their identities once they were within marriages and they had to obey and serve their husbands. In more modern times, women were expected to be virgins when they were married, but men could fool around with sex workers no problem at all. I think it was even encouraged sometimes. Uh, the post-World War II baby boom led to the obsession of the nuclear family. Like we were talking about the working dad, the stay-at-home mom taking care of the house and the children. Men made decisions for the family and held more independence than women. I mean, women couldn't even have credit cards in their own name until the 70s. And white women in the U.S. couldn't vote until 1920. We just reached the 100-year mark of that. That's crazy. And... Throughout history, there's been this stereotype of the domineering woman who wears the pants in relationships, and that this type of woman is not to be desired by men. It was used to poke fun of the suffragettes in the 1920s um, and earlier for wanting the right to, vo to vote. It was used to make fun of basically women in every wave of the feminist movement. Um, so like I said, these women aren't to be desired. And it just goes to show how women really need to be kept in their place. These political decisions, decisions outside of the home need to be made by men. And a woman that doesn't want to be a wife or a mother is part of the breakdown of the American family and the American 
quote unquote values system. It's values is a word I don't really like uh, when we talk about stuff like this. And we'll touch on that a little more later. When it comes back to looking at gender roles, a lot of times gay and lesbian couples don't necessarily have them, but they can still be affected by them. And they can be affected by them in the way that people view what they ought to be doing. So how can two men raise a baby or how can two women keep a household up? And there's also that question that I'm sure so many gay and lesbian couples get asked, who's the man in the relationship? Who's the woman? Right, as if there has to be a, one man and one woman in a relationship for it to be an actual relationship. Yeah, and again, that's this codified language of who is the assertive one, who's the breadwinner, who is the feminine one, who cooks, who cleans, who's more sensitive even. Right, and this also attacks straight couples that have it where the man is going to stay at home with the kids and he's going to take care of the house and the woman is going to go out and make more money than him. Men are told to think less of themselves if they make less than the woman that they're with. Another aspect to discuss when looking at DOMA is the separation of church and state and how this law violated that. The concept of the separation of the federal government and any specific religion comes from the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which states that, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. This has been interpreted as meaning that there should not be a government-sponsored religion or a religion that the government gives preferential treatment to. This was stated clearly in 1802 by Thomas Jefferson, who stated that the Establishment Clause was built to be a wall between church and state. That's all really interesting to hear. I, it's been a while since I've, I guess I've been learning about that in school. <laughs> um, but it is clear to see that some politicians do bring a personal bias into lawmaking. I mean, the Defense of Marriage Act, the name alone means marriage is under attack and we need to defend it. So is there true separation of church and state? I mean, this is a question we're still asking today. And, you know, I can think of a few cases off the top of my head that make me question that. Even when looking at our elections, we definitely tend to elect people who are believers. The Pew Research Center did a study where they looked at which groups voters were most likely and least likely to vote for. And consistently, voters stated that they were least likely to vote for a candidate that they believed was a non-believer. And I think that this definitely comes from the fact that evangelicals were brought into the political sphere and they were brought in for the sole purpose to be anti-progressive. Yeah, evangelicals, there was a big movement um, of evangelical voters within politics in the 1980s, so right before DOMA was uh, put into law. Evangelicals and conservative politicians felt the country was being ruined by liberal elite Democrats and that the country's moral compass was being destroyed, so they really bonded over that. Ronald Reagan, a self-proclaimed born-again Christian, was elected in the 1980s and was interested in what these evangelical leaders were demanding. He became friendly with these leaders, including Jerry Falwell, which led to the beginning of the modern Republican Party and its alliance with white evangelical Christians. Uh, evangelicals are known to be loyal to their leaders and very motivated to vote. And this is another case where hip-hop definitely 
comes in. I'm sure you're aware of the things that have been happening with Jerry Falwell Jr. and the fact that he definitely does not live up to the traditional marriage and Christian ideals that he proclaims he does. We see the hypocrisy with these televangelists. They end up getting found out somehow. Um, Tammy Faye Baker's husband, um, I can't think of his name, but he cheated on his wife and he stole money that was being uh, given to his church. Like, that's so hypocritical. People often say uh, the U.S. was founded on Christian principles and is still considered a predominantly Christian country to this day. We know that by fact, but a lot of people are identifying as not religious anymore and it's really you know, people practicing religion is kind of declining rapidly. Um, And again, this Christian principle, Christian nation, is an argument that a lot of people fall back on when we are talking about these um, cases where separation of church and state comes into question. Our current Congress is 88% Christian, and we have only 10 openly LGBT members. All right, and just to add some more context to that number, we have... Over 400 Congress people, only 10 are openly um, a part of the LGBTQ plus community. So imagine what it was like in the 90s. Like, I don't know if anybody was really openly out serving in that specific Congress. No. So back in those times, they definitely had a culture of trying to out people, whether it was for being a communist in the 50s and 60s. And then after that, um, being a homosexual was something that people were being outed for. So it was definitely not a thing where you would be homosexual and have a career within politics. Don't out anybody. If you're going to learn anything from this episode, just don't out anybody. It's not cool. People will come out when they are ready. So like we mentioned, Bill Clinton kind of doubled down on being an LGBT ally after DOMA was enacted. So he elected James C. Hormel as ambassador to Luxembourg, but many within Congress did not approve of him. And I just have a select uh, list of quotes about Hormel's nomination that really make me wonder, where is the separation of church and state that's happening? So Senator Jesse Helms publicly opposed a homosexual lifestyle and called gay people, quote, degenerates and weak and morally sick wretches. Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott compared being gay to, quote, alcohol, sex addiction or kleptomania. And House Majority Leader Dick Armey said, quote, the Bible is very clear on this, this meaning homosexuality. So that is so blatant. He's literally saying the Bible is clear on how I need to feel about this person. Where is the separation of church and state in that? I mean, he's elected to be a leader of his people, of his state, not a pastor. The thing is, and a lot of times when people bring their homophobia into their politics, they have these quotes that they love to bring up and they love to bring up how clear the Bible is, but they also try to call themselves compassionate people. So let's examine the actual text that these people are using to call themselves compassionate. So the first is Leviticus 2013, and it says, If a man lies with the male, as he lies with the woman, both of them have committed an abomination. So nice. So understanding. (laughs) Leviticus also goes on to say, nor shall you mate with an animal to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. 
it is a perversion. Do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. And if I sound so sarcastic saying these, it's because you are comparing bestiality with homosexuality, and for that, I won't take you seriously. Also, bestiality is like kind of legal in some states. Just think about that. Of course. Of course it is. <laughs> so, for those saying, well, that's just the Old Testament. The New Testament is nicer. Well, maybe not. In Romans, it says, for this reason, God gave them up to vow passions. For even their woman exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burn in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. And I'm sure everyone knows of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where the term sodomy comes from. And just in general, Sodom and Gomorrah was seen as an abomination unto the Lord, and Jude testified about God's fury um, about Sodom for what they termed sexual immorality. And sexual immorality, strange flesh, um, what the Sodomites have gone after, all that was homosexuality. I'm glad I have you here, Zell, because I was really not raised with any religion. So whenever people read scripture, it like completely goes over my head. So, and here's the thing. It's one of those things where I think it's important to read the scripture because when people say that they are compassionate towards homosexuals, they just don't respect the sin. I think it's important to know where that's coming from. And one of the things that you cannot divorce is the vileness and the disrespect that their foundation is. You can't say that I love the sinner, I just don't respect the sin. But I think that person is an abomination unto the Lord and they're going to burn in hell for all of eternity. Yeah, we're going to talk about this a little later on, um, what acceptance versus tolerance is. And I think tolerance is what you were kind of saying, the love the, love the sinner, hate the sin. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and just more examples of, Republican senators completely missing the point is Chuck Hagel. He said, quote, ambassadors are representing our lifestyle, our values, our standards. And I think that it's an inhibiting factor to be gay. And he goes on to say openly, aggressively gay, which I love hearing those words like together now. I love things that are openly, aggressively gay. I'm showing my bias here, but the fact that he is so uncomfortable with someone being themselves. And so many people, you know, there's that idea of like, oh, you're the good gay or you're the good whatever because you're not that stereotype. So I don't know if maybe openly aggressively gay means someone that's flamboyant, someone that maybe isn't afraid to show affection to their partner. But I'm sure if someone wasn't openly and aggressively gay, it would make him more comfortable. So again, we're trying to 
just live up to what Mr. Hagel wants people to be. And while he since apologized for his, quote, insensitive comments, words like immoral, values, lifestyle, the homosexual agenda, etc., they have been used as the religious justification for homophobia and the othering of people in the LGBTQ plus community. This also goes with the whole idea that being gay is just a choice. You know, I think I speak for both of us. We know that gay and lesbian and trans people are just, to quote Lady Gaga, born this way. This is just how you were born. There's nothing you can change about it. And there's absolutely nothing wrong. Yes. There's nothing wrong with you. We'll definitely come back to homophobia and its connection to the United States culture. But before we get into that, we do need to have a conversation about one of those things that was at the heart of DOMA. And that was the question of federal rights versus states' rights versus individual rights. Simply put, these arguments arise from the question of whose rights are paramount and what rights are bestowed at each level. Federal rights are the powers that were given to the government in the Constitution. Here in the United States, these rights include the power to coin money, to regulate commerce, to declare war, to raise and maintain armed forces, and to establish a post office. Many countries around the world hold the same rights, including Canada and the United Kingdom. States' rights refers to the control that states have over the activities that are permissible within their borders. These rights also include how those activities are to be regulated. For example, gun laws vary from state to state. States' rights can also be seen in the context of the federal government or other states not being able to infringe on the ability of a state to make the decisions it feels are best for its residents. For example, one state may ban an activity that is legal in another. An example of this is owning exotic pets. In New Jersey, this is expressly banned, and the U.S. government or another state like neighboring Pennsylvania has no right to try and stop New Jersey from passing and enforcing this law. Many opponents of same-sex marriage try and use the state's rights argument for why individual states should be allowed to ban same-sex marriage. Individual rights refers to the protections a citizen has from the government interfering in their lives. The Constitution bestows certain rights to everyone who is a lawful citizen of the country. Most rights are not forfeited, but some may be depending on the actions of the person. This is connected to the This is connected to the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. It states, quote, "No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protections of the law. Simply put, unless you have violated the rights of others, the government has no power to violate your rights. Going back to the homophobia tied to this law, we need to talk about the culture of homophobia that exists in the United States. We are going to focus on U.S. culture today, but we definitely recommend taking a look at how homosexuality is viewed throughout the world. Homosexuality is currently illegal in 72 countries. Many of these countries are within Africa and the Middle East. 
A major talking point amongst those who are homophobic is the slippery slope argument. This argument states that if you make homosexuality legal, then you would need to make a whole host of other things legal next. This includes polygamy, pedophilia, and bestiality. And this is really offensive. We kind of talked on this earlier, but just equating one thing to another that is totally different is, again, othering this group of people. Um, And if we want to say the slippery slope argument, first cousin marriage is legal in 19 states and legal under certain circumstances in nine more. So what is the defense for that? Why is that a sanctity of marriage? I know, I mean, we're in the 21st century. We're not having, you know, we're not trying to keep this like small bloodline going anymore. It doesn't really make sense. It's bizarre. Right. And the tradition of cousins marrying is tied to royals. And we've never had royals in this country. So why do we have a law allowing cousins to marry? Yeah, I mean, we fought against, you know, having the role, like no royals in this country, essentially. It's pretty wild looking at these certain things. It's important to note that being gay wasn't legal nationwide until 2003. And this is sodomy laws and same-sex conduct laws. And Texas was the last state. And the case that overturned this was Lawrence versus Texas. And we know that gay people have been around for centuries all over the world. And again, we could have a whole podcast on gay history, which I'm sure there is, and I would love to listen to it. But we're going to focus on some more notable modern aspects of gay LGBT history in the U.S. In 1958, the one versus Olison Supreme Court decision ruled that free speech laws covered pro-homosexual speech and that pro-homosexual speech wasn't inherently obscene. This paved the way for the celebration of the LGBTQ plus community through literature and art. The gay rights movement really began in the U.S. in the 1960s after patrons grew tired of police raids on gay bars and other gay venues. We talk about the Stonewall riots, the Black Cat Tavern, and the Compton Cafeteria riots were all really groundbreaking moments. In 1973, homosexuality was no longer considered a mental disorder by the APA. I know we're saying homosexuality, um, but a lot of people don't like that term because it is very clinical, as particularly because Um, being gay, being lesbian, was considered a mental disorder for so long. And if we're going to talk about gay history in America, we can't not mention the AIDS epidemic. It killed 324,029 men and women between 1987 and 1998. We talked about this a little within the Jeffrey Dahmer episode, um, which you should definitely listen to. AIDS was really seen as a gay disease when it first came about, and people called it gay cancer, and they really only thought gay men were getting it. And because of this, many people claimed that the government was slow to enact support because, again, of this potential homophobia. In 1993, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was signed into policy, which disallowed gay service members from serving openly. In 1997, Ellen DeGeneres came out on her very popular TV show and lost her TV show. 
1998, Matthew Shepard, a 21-year-old, was beaten to death in a hate crime, and his death really brought on the discussion of hate crimes and LGBT protections. And most recently, in 2016, was the Pulse shooting, uh, where LGBT people were targeted at a gay club. So gay and lesbian and trans people have been through a lot, even in these last 60-ish years in our country. It's important to recognize this history when we're talking about modern times. And LGBT people face so much still, you know. Many people think, okay, well, gay marriage was legalized, you know, that's the end-all be-all. But it's really not. Housing and job discrimination is prevalent. There's 21 states only with full protections for LGBT people for employment discrimination. There's adoption discrimination. There's 20 states with no explicit protection for LGBT and same-sex families. There's 11 states that actually permit state-licensed child welfare agencies to refuse same-sex couples' children to be foster parents. Conversion therapy of LGBT youth is allowed in 29 states. And trans people have so much to fight for, too. I mean, we've seen all these bathroom bills. Trans people literally have to fight on where they can use the bathroom. It's so ridiculous. And there's a lot of laws and difficulty in getting your name changed and getting your birth certificate changed to show your appropriate gender. It's very complicated and there's a lot that people probably don't realize. Healthcare discrimination is another important thing. There's 28 states with no laws providing LGBT inclusive insurance protections. And in 13 states, there's no hate crime laws that include sexual orientation or gender identity. So there is a lot we need to overcome still. And there's a lot we can do to support LGBT people specifically within the U.S. While anti-homosexuality sentiments are still strong in certain parts of the United States, we have made some progress towards a more inclusive society. 72% of U.S. adults feel homosexuality should be accepted. That's from a 2019 study by the Pew Research Center, which is kind of lower than I thought it would be. But when you compare it to the last study, I think was in 2007, and it was only 49% of adults felt homosexuality should be accepted. So imagine what it was in the 90s. So when thinking about how far we come as a society, we definitely need to look at the differences between accepting something and tolerating something. So tolerance is living with something. And when it comes to the core of who someone is, tolerance is not enough. You tolerate simple inconveniences in your life. And acceptance is being okay and embracing something. And that's what we should be doing with everyone. We should be accepting and embracing people for who they are. People are not deciding. They're not waking up one day and saying, I'm going to be gay today. I'm going to be trans today. Despite what you may see on some news channels, that's not what happens. People don't choose to be within a marginalized group. So when looking at tolerance, look at it as you would look at anything else. If you were someone who walked up to another person and they said, you know, I'm going to tolerate you today. Would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with someone saying that they would tolerate your basic existence? Or would you want them to accept you? Would you want them to look at you with the same 
love and care and consideration that they would give to anyone else. You said that so well, Del. It really is just as simple as letting people live who as who they are and not keeping them in a closet, keeping them hidden, letting people be who they are and saying, I support you and I love you and I'm glad you are who you are. I have personal experience with all of this. I'll get on a soapbox real quick, but part of why I am very biased is because this is my truth. I'm in an LGBT household. I have two moms. I've always been raised by lesbian parents. I was part of the lesbian baby boom of the 90s. And this hits very close to home for me. Um, I'm, I'm lucky I live in a generally accepting area. But growing up, my family did face certain things. My parents wanted me to get christened. And we had to go to a church in a different state because no one around here would accept them. When I wanted to get swimming lessons, we went to the YMCA. And because it's the Young Men's Christian Association, I was the one at six years at six years old that had to get a membership and my parents weren't allowed to because they were openly gay and just knowing you take a minute sometimes and just think wow like people hate my family people don't want us to exist they don't want us to have the same rights as everyone else it just it hurts your heart it hurts your mind it's it's not fair it's not right to tell someone you're different because of who you love. It's just not fair. And we are in a, I think, a good place in history, but we still have so much to experience and grow through and overcome and recognize. Like in 15 years, I'm so curious to think like, you know, where are trans rights going to go? I feel like that's the next big LGBT battle. And it's important for everyone to be an ally. You know, so many times people think this is a little tangenty, but there are people that are gay and lesbian that don't support trans people. And we need to support them because as marginalized people, we can all relate to one another somehow. I really feel like we owe it to one another to lift each other up and say, I have your back and I can relate in some way. I might not know exactly what you're going through, but I can have an idea, I sympathize, I have a similar problem, and I'm here for you. Jenny, that is such a touching story, and it's also so true. You have to be someone that's willing to look someone right in the eye and say, I care. I want you to be able to succeed in life, and I want you to be able to have all the rights and privileges that are owed to you as a human being, irregardless of what you do in the privacy of your own home. Irregardless of what you do out during the parades, irregardless of what bathroom you choose to use and whether that's based on how you know you are or what a doctor told you 20 some odd years ago when you were born. I think one of the most valuable things you can have in life is perspective. Just the perspective to know that other people are going through things that you're not is very powerful and I'm very grateful to have experiences that have taught me perspective and I just wish that upon everybody. 
Yes, I think it's so important. You know, people always talk about being able to see things through someone else's eye, to live a day and walk a mile in someone else's shoes. And I would hope that people who currently do not view themselves as an ally, I hope that they take a moment to see what it would be like to be viewed as someone who's not worthy of rights and protection simply because of who you love or the way you express your true identity and maybe this episode has gotten biased or preachy quote unquote but this is stuff Dell and I really believe in and we don't tolerate hate for people maybe some of our opinions are controversial but we know we're not the only ones out there and we need know we need to express our opinions and I think again one of the most valuable things you can do in addition to having perspective is to vote we have a major election coming up just vote regardless of how you vote do it it's your right you're exercising it you're telling your country what you want whether I agree with it or not you're allowed to do it you know Sometimes I'm guilty of uh, it can wait type of attitude, but when it comes to voting, it can't wait. You need to vote now and you need to vote every time it's available to you. And if you're wondering how, you know, you can help trans people, gay people, black people, brown people, immigrants, anyone, voting is a really great way to do that. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know what you think of this law and other laws that are passed to restrict the rights of marginalized groups. Make sure you click the subscribe button. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform every Wednesday with a new episode. And make sure to leave us a five-star rating and review. Follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and Twitter at Charade Inc. And please consider donating to our Patreon. This helps us get better equipment and brings higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount you can give. This is Jenny and Dell signing off. Stay safe.